it's good to be here today. We get to continue our story on David. Uh, I mentioned last week we started talking about David and Bathsheba, and we really needed two weeks to cover that story. Last week was kind of, it was, I don't want to say it was depressing, but it was heavy, right? It was a heavy week when we talk about the steps that lead to sin and to death. But this week we get to turn the corner and we get to learn about the steps that lead to freedom and life. And so uh, I'm excited about that. Uh, David, he was a shepherd. He was a warrior. He was a fugitive. He was a king. He was a father. We look at all of these different aspects of his life. But like Mark kind of said, it gives us a little bit of comfort to know that David also struggled with sin. I, to me, it humanizes David. It's not that he's some this great mythical character. He was a real guy that had real struggles. And we see the effects that sin can have on anybody. We see how it can take you down that path that we don't want to go. Uh, we love in our culture today, I think we love stories of redemption. Uh, we went and saw last week uh, Top Gun Maverick. How many of y'all have seen that now? Did y'all like the movie? It was a good movie, right? I mean, it's hard not to get a speeding ticket when you leave the theater, though. I mean, I'm wanting to, like, you know, mash it and leave. But it's a story of redemption, right? Uh, he, he feels, and I can't give the story away too much, but it's a story of redemption. He, he, the first movie, if you haven't seen the first movie by now, you've had 20 years, so it's too bad. Uh, you know, Goose dying, and he's carrying that guilt of Goose dying, uh, you know, with him through all this time. It's a story of redemption now. Uh, and, and we see that in our culture. We're drawn to stories uh, where the, the, the bad guy becomes good or uh, some tragic circumstance is turned around and it all ends up good. We don't go to many movies that end with somebody messing up or failing or dying at the end of the movie. I mean, those are kind of, those are heavy movies. But stories of redemption grab our attention. We see it uh, in the sports world. I was... Um, um, I was thinking about this, uh, uh, about last year, I guess, I'd watched the documentary on Michael Vick, uh, the 30 for 30 special on ESPN, and you mentioned his name, and some people like love Michael Vick, and some people absolutely cannot stand him, uh, but he, he was quarterback, went to Virginia Tech, went to Atlanta Falcons, uh, got in trouble for dogfighting, ended up in federal prison for two years. Now, came out, went to the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, was voted Comeback Player of the Year, made the Pro Bowl, uh, all this stuff about his story, if you don't know much about what happened to him. Um, and some people still can't stand him. And, and here's the story. In real life, now, movies, it always turns out good. But in real life, here's the problem we have sometimes with stories of redemption. We have trouble forgiving people. We have trouble forgetting. We, have tr we hold on to things. And when I think about that, I think about David, thinking about his, his sin. He's carrying the weight of that with him, even though God redeems him. Because in Hollywood, you always have to redeem yourself. Uh, in David's story, uh, he doesn't redeem himself. God redeems him, right? He humbles himself and allows God to redeem him. But we see in real life, stories don't always turn out the way we expect. They don't always have the happy Hollywood ending. And yet, here we are in this story with David, and we learn a lot about how we can crawl out of this hole that we've dug for ourselves. Um, and, and so, last week, four steps to sin and death. Uh, let me just kind of go back over those to remind us what got David into this mess. 
The first step, he was neglecting his duty. Kings were supposed to be out at war leading their troops. He stayed home and, uh, and, and stayed on the roof and did nothing. And that's what got him in trouble. Uh, the second thing was allowing lust to control our thoughts. Now, for David, this was a sexual lust. But for us, it could be sexual or it could be just a, a lust for things of this world. Things that we don't have, but that we think we need. And so uh, this, this gets us in trouble when we start wanting and desiring things over, uh, over God. And then the third thing was giving in to temptation. Uh, we see David not just looked at Bathsheba, he gave in to the temptation, brought her there, uh, got her pregnant. Uh, and then the fourth thing was hiding our sin. And that's when things really spiraled out of control for David. When he tried to cover up his sin by having Bathsheba's husband Uriah murdered on the, on the front lines of battle. And we see all of this just leading. And we see in David just continue to get deeper and deeper into trouble. And I feel like sometimes we do that. We, we, we sin and we, we don't, we, we call it, well, we didn't really sin. We just made a mistake. We just kind of... Uh, we just bent the rules a little bit. Oh, no, it won't hurt anybody. No one will ever notice. And then to, to hide it and to keep it from coming out, we have to do something a little bit bigger. And then we do something. You see a, a progression take place. And that's exactly what happened with David here. So that's what got him into trouble. Today we get to kind of turn things around and talk about how we can find freedom, how we can find forgiveness, how we can understand grace and mercy. Um, and so uh, this morning, I, I think it's a, a message for all of us. So no matter what you've done, no matter what you've gone through, today is a day that I hope will bring you some courage to do what is right and to get, uh, to get closer to God. Uh, so four steps to freedom. I'm going to jump right in this morning. The first step we need to do, and we can learn it from this story, is we can listen to God's Word. We can listen to God's Word. Now, David thinks he's gotten away with it. Now, in this story, some time has passed now. The baby has already been born. It's been about a year at least. And so David is coasting along. Uh, he struggled with this. And we'll see from some of the Psalms, uh, Psalm 32 in particular, that it's been weighing on his mind. But he's kind of covered this up. He feels, like, I think he's probably reached that point like, I wonder if I've got away with this. I wonder if I'm in the clear now. And, and it's at that point. So it's not really even on his mind. And that's when Nathan the prophet shows up. Now Nathan was his trusted advisor to the king. And he walks in with a story. He didn't walk in to directly confront the king. But he walked in with a story. And we'll pick that up in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, that's where we'll be for the most part this morning. So in chapter 12 uh, is, uh, is the story of redemption. Um, and so the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at, home, at the home of the rich man. 
But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and he killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. So Nathan was pretty slick. He came in and he told a story, a story that grabbed David's attention, a story that made David furious. But Nathan served as a prophet. And what did prophets do? We, we kind of have this mistaken idea that all prophets did was tell the future. Prophets were spokespeople for God. They, they, they spoke on behalf of God. And sometimes they predicted the future, but sometimes they confronted sin. And here is a case where Nathan served as a forth teller. He served, he served as someone to come and tell the truth, uh, to, to, serve a me, to, to serve a message. And so we see in the Old Testament that God speaks in a lot of different ways. He spoke through a burning bush, right? He spoke through a donkey. He spoke in numerous ways. Here he spoke through a prophet. In, in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, it tells us that God speaks still today, but not through prophets. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. But now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. If you're here today and you're like, God doesn't really speak to me today. I, I don't want to embarrass you and ask you, like, how many of you have heard the audible voice of God? I think that can even be a little weird. Like, if you're walking around and God, hello there. I mean, we don't, we don't really, that's not how God really, I'm not saying he can't communicate that way, but that's, he communicates to us now through his word, through Jesus. And, and so Jesus, when he was here on earth, he spoke uh, he, the words were recorded. That's the Bible we have today. So I would say this. If you say that God doesn't speak to you today, that tells me then that you're not reading the Bible. Because if you read the Bible, God is speaking to you. Every single time you open the pages of Scripture, it is God speaking directly to you. So if you want to hear from God, open the Word. You want to hear from God? Just open the word and allow it to speak to us. Now, he can also speak to us through friends and family that that love God. And God uses other people in our life. He can use circumstances. He He can do those things, but he primarily speaks to us through his word today. And we need to learn to listen to that word. Now, in Hebrews 4, it says this. It says, the Word of God is alive and powerful. I, 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 this is something that separates the Bible from every other book that has ever been written. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before His eyes, and He is the one to whom we are accountable. There's something about the Bible when we read it, uh, man, it just exposes our, uh, it exposes everything about us. You can hide your sin from people. And that's what David was doing here. He was hiding it from people. 
but you cannot hide it from God. And God comes to you through his word, seeking you out to expose your sin, to, to, to kind of pull you back, to lead you back to repentance. And so Nathan was used by God to, to be that person, to speak God's word, to get David's attention. And so David's going to be faced with a choice now. How do I respond? Because often when we're faced, when we're confronted with sin, what do we do? We blame someone else. I think, we, I think everybody does that. Um, it's not a good trait, but we like blame shifting. We like, well, it wasn't really me, it's somebody... We rationalize it. Well, you don't understand. Let me explain what was really going on. Let me explain why I did that. We make excuses. Um, but here, David is faced with a choice on how is he going to respond. And that leads me to the second thing here. The first step is listening to God's word. The second is we have to start understanding there are consequences to sin. Again, I, I, we live in this world where it's like, as long as you say you're sorry, then you're just expected everybody to forget it and move on. That's what we want. I said, I'm sorry. Why can't you forgive me? Why can't we? That's kind of the, the, the thought that we have. And sometimes we forget that sin has consequences. Sin carries with it this idea that when we do it, it not only affects us, it affects everyone around us. It leaves a wake of destruction in its path. And well, and I know, you know, as Christians, we like to focus on grace and mercy and forgiveness. And those are great things. God will forgive us of our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but he does not erase the consequences for our actions. He does not, like, remove us from the consequences for what we've done. Second Samuel, we'll pick it up in verse 7 in chapter 12 here. Then Nathan said to David, I love how Nathan, I mean, this is direct. This is, Nathan is putting his life on the line here, speaking to the king that way. You are that man. He just told this story about the lambs and David's mad and saying, whoever did this deserves to die. And, and Nathan says, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and his king in the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, here are the consequences now. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking your rise wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own households to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Think about Nathan for a minute. I mean, he, his, he's given this mission by God to go and speak before the king. Uh, you know, the most powerful man in all of Israel. He had to go and stand before him and give this message and call him out. I, I don't know, but to me, I, I would think, I mean, Nathan had to be a man of incredible faith to do this. 
because it was likely that he would be, this would not be received well. Uh, David has already killed Uriah to cover it up. Who's to say he's not going to kill Nathan to keep covering it up? This is why this is such a pivotal moment in the story of David. How is he going to respond? Nathan challenges him here. And the first thing he does is tell him there are consequences to his actions. There are consequences. And he goes over these consequences, right? Um, and, and, and uh, you know, and the consequences, let's just talk about those for a minute. He says, violence is not going to depart from your house. The sword is going to be in your house. What happens to David's family later on in David's story? His, his daughter Tamar was raped by her half-brother Amnon. You remember? Uh, this, it gets rough. David doesn't do anything about it. So what does Absalom do? He takes it into his own hands. He murders Amnon. Then Absalom tries to take David's throne. Then he is killed. Then uh, Adonijah tries to take over the throne. This is, uh, his whole family, it's like, I mean, this is craziness from here on out. Next week, we're going to talk about David's role as a father and, and kind of what led uh, to some of this happening and the effects of sin that sin can carry over to future generations. But right here, what we see is David's family is a wreck now because of how he's handled this whole situation. His wives would be given to another. In verse 14 that we'll read in a minute, we'll see that the baby even dies. This is, this is tough. This is horrible. This all, and here's what we should take away from this. There are consequences to sin. So often we think, well, I'm not hurting anyone. And if you sin, I, I want you to know that you're hurting everyone that comes into contact with you, whether you realize it or not. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with families who are left to pick up the pieces after someone has done something stupid and wrong and sinned. It's it's heartbreaking to see the effect that it has on the family. And, And you can't sin in private and expect not to reap a harvest of consequences. And consequences... They, they just spill out because everybody that we're associated with is affected. And that's what we see here in this story. And so David is faced with this. Is he, how is he going to respond? Is he just going to say, yeah, I'm sorry, my bad, and, and move on? Or is he really, truly going to be humbled by this? In 2 Corinthians, there's a, a, a verse here that I think is very applicable to us today. It says, for the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience, leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Worldly sorrow is how most people in Hollywood or politics respond. Like, I'm sorry I got caught. Right? I mean, let's... That's kind of the the way most people respond. I'm sorry, but I'm not really sorry. I'm just sorry I got caught or got called out. And so you don't see a change in that person. Uh, They just keep going on like nothing happened, and they just make their apology tour, say what is expected to be said, and then move on. But what, what God is asking for from David and from us is that when we say I'm sorry, that we truly mean it. I'm afraid, again, that even in the church today, we focus so much on grace, 
focus so much on God's mercy. And those are great things. Those are things we need to talk about. But we focus so much on that that we don't really focus about repentance. We don't really focus on sorrow. We don't really focus on sin. And we get comfortable in our sin. And I've even talked to people. They're like, oh, it's all right. I can do this. God will forgive me. <laughs> and it's like premeditated sin. That scares me. Because it shows a lack of understanding of the gospel. It shows that we don't really understand God's grace. And this is not a new problem. It's even talked about in Romans 6. This was an argument that people made. You mean I can be forgiven of my sin? You mean that it's based not on what my efforts or what I've done, but on what Jesus has done? And so why don't I just sin all the time and I can be forgiven all the time? And the response is, should we keep on sinning? This is Romans 6. Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? So we see here, this is, this is, uh, this is a kind of a, a classic manipulation of the gospel to say, well, I can just sin as much as I want and God will forgive me over and over and over. If we don't really understand, we have died to sin. We have been set free. We have been forgiven. And as a result of that, our lives have changed and we are not the same person that we once were. We're called to live differently. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be holy. We're called to be an example for the world around us. That's what, uh, under, that's what grace is. We understand how much we've been forgiven, so it causes us to go out and live differently. Uh, Mark read Psalm 51 this morning, and that, that psalm was written by David as a response. And I love, one of the great things about David's story is we don't just get the historical account of what's happened. We get the account of what he's feeling and experiencing and his, his heart. We get the heart behind the man. And he says in verse 4 of what Mark read, Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment is against me. It's just. I was born a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt." Let me ask you, does that sound like a man that is uh, just trying to cover things up and make excuses? It sounds like a broken man to me. Sounds like someone that is humbled by the, uh, the sin in their life and they don't want to stay there any longer. I, I, we've got to get to that place in our life where we're like, God, I, I'm broken because of what I've done and I don't want to stay here anymore. I don't want to stay here. I want to be different. Cleanse me. Help me. Empower me. And so David begins right where he needs to be. And, and he's not bargaining. He's not blaming. He's not rationalizing. He's not trying to make a deal with God. He just comes to God and says, yep, whatever you accuse me of, you're right because you're just. You're God and I'm not. In essence is what David is saying. And that kind of leads us then to the third step to freedom. 
And that is the step of actual repenting. That's, that's where we say, we underst- okay, we've listened to God's word. It is spoken to us. We've understood what it means. We've understood the consequences of our actions. Now we move and say, okay, I'm going to repent. And we've got to talk a little bit about what repentance means here. Our natural, I think our natural inclination is to explain sin away. And like, oh, well, you know, I didn't really mean it. I didn't really, tr-. We, we do that. It's not really as bad as it looks. Um, it was just a moment of weak it, weakness. I think um, there's, there's a phrase that's used, and if, if you look at this, and almost every, it must be some PR firm helping people with this. Uh, every politician that messes up, uh, that gets caught in a web of lies and deceit, they always, there's, and I, I've seen pastors say this too when they're caught, um, and leaders in the business world, they'll say one thing, mistakes were made. mistakes were made yeah and you made it and you did it and you've got to own it and that's why we don't trust them when they say that it's like I just yeah mistakes were made by who you know you're you're deflecting blame to someone else that's where David could say yes mistakes were made but but we've gone past that now no he didn't say that Uh, verse 13 David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, period. No, he didn't say, but. Can I tell you when we start like saying, well, I've done this, but just don't say anything else. (laughs) Own it. Own it. Own it. That's where it starts. That's where repentance starts. Nathan replied, yes, the Lord has forgiven you immediately, but... Uh, and he says, you won't die for your sin. Okay, he's, he's telling him here, you're not going to die for your sin. He goes on in verse 14. I'll skip down here a little bit. He does, um, he does say, nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. And that's a tough verse. I'm not going to lie. There's, there's verses in the Bible that are tough to understand and to understand why the baby dies because of David's sin. I don't have any easy answers. But it does show how your sin affects everybody around you. It does show that there are consequences for your sin. So now David's faced with this choice. Is he going to truly repent? That godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Oswald Chambers, who wrote uh, the devotional, he was an early 20th century Scottish preacher. He wrote the devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. Um, he once called repentance the foundation of Christianity. It's the foundation of who we are. Martin Luther said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. See, repentance is not just for those who don't know Jesus. It's for every single one of us. Jesus' first words of public ministry were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is repentance? What does it mean? Um, Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan pastor, 17th century, he wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. And he defined it. He gave kind of six steps of repentance that I want to kind of share real briefly today. He defines it this way. He says, repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. I like that because it's pretty simple. 
you're inwardly humbled. You're humbled at the, you realize really quickly who God is and what you've done, how you've sinned against God. And you're visibly reformed. You're visibly transformed. There's a a noticeable change in who you are and how you live because of that, uh, that humbling experience. His book explains there's kind of six marks of true repentance. And, and I'll just go through these real quick. And remember, this was written in the 17th century. But the sight of sin, you see it. Uh, You've got to see it before you can repent of it. It's just acknowledging it, understanding it, you see it. And a lot of us have blind spots. We don't always see it. So seeing it is such an important first step. Then you feel sorrow for sin. Uh, it not, you've got to be sorry not just for the sin itself but for the consequences for sinning against God it's a it's a you've got to feel that sorrow for sin then the confession of sin uh true repentance comes with confession and he he even went farther than that he said it's a confession that has to be voluntary specific and sincere in other words you don't apologize because you you're made to you do it on your own volition not only that you it's a specific uh, confession and I think little kids are kind of sometimes they're like, God, just forgive me of everything so I can go eat ice cream. Amen. It's like, we do that as adults too. It's like, okay, uh, you know, forgive me of everything today. No, specific sin. Call it out. Name it. It's humbling, but you got to do it. And then he said, uh, specific, he said, voluntary, specific, and sincere. Sincere. Then, so that's confession. That's the third thing. The fourth thing says you should feel a shame for sin. It's a mark of true repentance. We don't like that word shame in our world today. But I think it can be healthy. And let me give you the distinction. Shame can be healthy when we feel it. When we feel it and it moves us to do something about it. Now, as a believer, we don't carry that shame with us. Because Jesus has taken that shame uh, from us. But we, when, it, we, when we truly feel that shame for what we've done, that's a healthy thing that can lead us to repentance. So, again, it's not something we take with us. It's not something we carry with us. But it's something we need to feel at the, at when, we, when we're confronted with our sin. Then that leads us to a hatred of sin. Simply hating it. Not, and guys... I think some, so many times this is where we get into trouble. We want to repent, but we really don't hate what we've done. We've kind of, in fact, enjoyed it. And so we keep going back to it because we've not reached the point of hating what it's done. When you look at drugs in our community, you should hate, uh, you should hate drugs. You should hate the effects of drugs. You should hate the effects of, of what it's done to our community, right? When you see how it's torn apart families and broken lives and how people have lost their lives, this, this should bring a hatred for that. And that's what I'm talking about. When we get to that point where we look at it and we see the effects and, and we just see the hatred uh, of sin. And then the sixth and final thing is the, the mark of true repentance is actually turning from your sin, not continuing to do it. And that's really where the question becomes, do you love your sin more than you love Jesus? Because if you love Jesus, you're going to quit doing the sin and you're going to turn back to him. There's a change of direction, a change of mind that leads to a changed behavior. And that's repentance. 
And so it's, it's helpful for us to understand this. And Acts 3 says, Now repent of your sins, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped away. It's not just being sorry that you got caught. It's not just making excuses or rationalizing. It's a true re- repentance. And I'll tell you this. If you want to see this church transformed, you want to see our community transformed, it's going to start with repentance. Every single revival throughout human history, as we study revivals, starts with repentance. There's prayer, there's worship, but repentance is at the heart of it. Where people get right with God, where people confess their sin, where people acknowledge where they've messed up and and, and cry out to God for help. Repentance is so important. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and it's a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love once what he hated and hate once what he loved. That's, that's what the discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning, the sorrow, the shame that we've committed it, a resolution to forsake it, the turning from it. This makes us love what once we hated and hate what we once loved. This is, this is what repentance does. And again, it's what every single believer, this is a rhythm of our life. The more we grow in Christ, the more we realize how sinful we are, the more we need to turn from our sin and repent. Oswald Chambers says, Repentance always brings a person to the point of saying, I have sinned. The surest sign that God is at work in, in his life is when he says it and when he means it. And I just share that because we've got to get to the point where we say, I'm, this, I'm a sinner. Just like David, I've sinned, but I've sought forgiveness. I've turned my life around. I've repented of that sin, and now I have found freedom and grace and mercy, and now I am a new person. Luke 5 says, I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners and need to repent. That's who Jesus came for. And if you're here today and you're like, but Mike, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not really sinning. I'm not really messing up. Then That just shows me that you're immature in your faith because the more you grow, the more sin you recognize that needs to be dealt with. The pride. All right. That's uh, if you're saying I'm got I'm doing pretty good. I'm not really sinning. Well, let's start with pride because that's where you're at right now. There, there every single one of us has uh, those things, those temptations that that we're tempted to, that we're given into, that we've got to recognize that we need to be continually repenting from and changing. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is a call to us to submit, to surrender, to come to God humbly, acknowledging our sins so that we can find forgiveness. The gospel is this invitation for us to come to God. It's not a condemnation. It's an invitation. It exposes us. It warns us. But it's, it's an invitation to find God's grace. I would say that David's sin in a lot of ways is probably worse than Saul's. Saul, dis, uh, you know, Saul disobeyed God's uh, commands to him and the prophets and David did too. The difference is how they responded. The difference is how they responded. When Saul was confronted with his sin, he just kept running farther and farther away from God. But David humbled himself, acknowledged the weight of his sin, and repented and turned back to God. And so 
that 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 this is just uh, man, this is this is important that we kind of grasp this, and it all leads us to this fourth step. When we understand, we listen to God's word, we understand those consequences. When we actually repent, then we can experience the new life in Christ that we're promised. Then we can start living the life that God wants and has prepared for us. This is when we get to that point where we start understanding what it means like to be in close relationship with God. John 10.10 says, A thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. It's all Satan wants to do in your life. To steal, to kill, and destroy. But I've come so that you may have life and you may have it in abundance. You may have it in abundance. I've come. Jesus is saying, I've come so that you can experience new life. You can experience a different way to live. You can experience to live a life that I've prepared for you. This is, this is so important. If we just think of God as the angry old man in the sky who's waiting to judge us and throw down lightning bolts when we mess up, we're going to hide our sin. It's, it's crazy. We can't hide our sin, but we're going we're gonna to try to. But when we understand he is a father that is there wanting us to, to give us uh, uh, the best life possible, give us new life. He wants us to experience that. And I, uh, he wants us to experience forgiveness and grace and mercy and, and live out our calling, live out what he has prepared for us. When we understand that, right, then it's gonna, we, we're able to come to him. We're able to confess our sin. We're able to come to him and, and acknowledge this is who I am, and this is how I've messed up, and this is why I need you. And so we understand that his mercy is greater than our sin. For David, it was murder and adultery, and yet God still forgave him. God still restored him as king. Um, Psalm 51 that Mark read, it said this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal, steadfast spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. I, that, that whole passage there, it's like David crying out saying, I want to have that joy again. I don't want to keep living miserable trying to hide my sin and, and, and carry this weight on my own. Make me willing to obey you. This is where... This is where your joy comes from when we live out who we really are. He says in verse 17, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and a repentant heart, O God. Now, mistakes have been made. I think every one of you could say that. Mistakes have been made in my life. As I look back over my life, there are things I wish I would have done differently. There are things that I have regret about. There are things that, that you may be carrying with you today in this place that you've never, really, you've never really even brought to the light before. But like David, you have a past. Mistakes have been made, but God can heal you. God can help you experience that new life. Here's what I want you to know. David's story doesn't end with failure. You can keep reading uh, he goes back to the battle. He leads his people to victory. He's restored to, to, to the king again. And, and for the nation of Israel, it's a time of peace and prosperity. Now, his own family, we'll talk about that next week. There's still consequences to be dealt with in his own family. But God restores him. 
And I, I want you to understand this. Just because you have failed doesn't mean you are finished. Just because you have failed, it does not mean you are finished. Throughout Scripture, what do we see? We see God using people who have broken paths. God, we see God restoring people, forgiving people, using people who have messed up. And so that tells us that we're in the business of redemption. We're in the business of changing people's stories. We're, we're in the business of helping people find restoration in Jesus. And that's what humility does. It takes the, the, the focus off of ourselves and how great we are and helps us lift up other people. Psalm 32 is another one of those psalms where David is sharing what's going on during this time of repentance. And I kind of want to close with it. It says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yet what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, finally, I confess my sins to you, all of my sins to you, and, you, and, and stop trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. If you're carrying that load on you today, I, the David put it into to, to words so eloquently that my body wasted away. I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. This is how you feel when you're carrying unconfessed sin around in your life. The first step is to confess it to God, to bring it out. Uh, to, to, to repent, to start turning your life back to God. And what, no matter what you've done, I, I, I just, I, I urge you, I, I'm telling you, this is what, this is such a fundamental part of the Christian life to continually turn from our sin and turn back to God. It is not our right to continue in sin. There are consequences. It's going to weigh on you heavy. It's going to affect your life. It's going to steal your joy. It's going to affect all those around you. You cannot simply do it and expect there not to be consequences. But when you repent, it's a whole different story. It's where you find grace. That's where you find mercy. That's where you find and experience God's love. And, and I just want to challenge you. Let's be people as a church that are known as people who may have had a past, but we're different now. We've repented. We've changed. We've turned to God. And, and in 2 Peter 3, it says, The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some people think. He's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but He wants everyone to repent. This idea of repentance is throughout Scripture. It's so important. So we can thank God today that He's given us a chance to repent. Uh, we're going to pray. Before we do that, I, I want to explain for a minute. We're going to close out our service. I think one of the best ways to do that is to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is a time for believers where we look back on what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Um, and so he went to the cross on our behalf. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. He lived a perfect life so that he could become the sacrifice, the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
And so when we take communion, it's us looking back on that and remembering and thankfulness, but it's also us looking forward to know that he's coming back again one day. And we've got a mission to do until he comes back. And so during this last song, I'm going to invite you to come up and receive the, the juice and the bread. Uh, they're on either side of the stage here. Uh, take that back to your seat with you. At the end of the song, I'm going to come up and we're going to take the communion together. Um, but let's stand up right now. I'm going to pray and the praise team's going to come back up. Let's stand together as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We, we're thankful for your word and help us to listen to your word Help us to understand the consequences of sin and help us to be people who actually repent and change our ways and turn back to you. Lord, I, as a church, we want to experience new life in Christ. We don't want to just claim we are Christians. We want to live like one. We want to be followers of Jesus who learn to live and to love like Jesus. Lord, help us to do that and help us to repent of our sins, to cry out to you where we have fallen short, where we have missed the mark. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge it and to turn back to you. Lord, I pray for every person in this room, every person watching online. First and foremost, if they don't know you, if they've not received the ultimate forgiveness by putting their faith and trust in Jesus, that they would do that right now. They confess with their mouth that Jesus is the Lord of their life. They believe in their heart that, God, you raised Jesus from the dead. And, Lord, I pray that when we, we pray that with sincerity. We pray that we cry out to you and know that you will hear our prayer. You will save those who call out to you. And, Lord, I pray for the believers in this room that you would help them to, 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 to acknowledge their sin, to, to turn from it, to repent, and to live for you. When we do that, Lord, we truly experience new life. We experience the gospel on a daily basis as we confess our sin and turn to you. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.